as you're turning, uh, I told Brother Ron that we've got a lot of people that are missing because of Thanksgiving. And I said it reminded me of an evangelist who came. First night of the meeting, the crowd was sparse. And uh, the evangelist looked over at the pastor and he said, Pastor, didn't you tell these people I was preaching? He said, yes, I did, but they came anyway. <laughs> and that's the way I feel about it. Let me say that I am so thankful for many of you that have prayed for us. Uh, I was thinking, and my wife knows exactly what I'm talking about. We were members of a church for six years, and it was running probably... 16, 1700, and you know, we did not have five people that would come to us and say, how's your ministry? We're praying for you. And every time I'm back here, you folks come and tell us that you're praying for us. That means so much to us. Uh, you know, a week, two weeks ago, we preached for the first time in several months because of the shingles, but uh, we were in Fort Myers, Florida, and a lady had brought a Catholic friend that she had known for 40 years and had prayed for this Catholic lady, and uh, the lady got saved that day. Uh, this Catholic lady had to come over an hour's drive. So after she got saved, this thing thrilled me. She said to the pastor, she said, Pastor, I'm not going to back to the Catholic church. I want you to help me find a church like this one. And that was a real blessing. Last Sunday, we were in Gainesville, Florida, one service on Sunday morning, and uh, we had two ladies that uh, came for salvation. That's why they came, but they were dealt with about assurance. But uh, thank the Lord they did get assurance of salvation. Thank you for your prayers. All right, James chapter 2. Stand please for the reading of God's word. Beginning please with verse 14. It says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say have faith and have not works? Can faith or can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith. If it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his son Isaac upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? 
Thank you very much. You may be seated. When Martin Luther came to the book of James, he overreacted and he said that the book of James should not be included in the canon of the New Testament. Now, when you realize from whence he was coming, you have to be somewhat sympathetic with his overreaction. You see, he had been all of his life involved in a church that said that man was saved by his works. But Martin Luther crawled up the Holy Stairs in Rome, the Church of the Holy Stairs, got to a locked Bible, and he read in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Upon further investigation, he found that that verse was repeated three times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, and Hebrews 10 and verse 28. But, ladies and gentlemen, there is no contradiction between Paul and, and, and James. Now, uh, James, or, or Martin Luther said, uh, James says that a man's justified by his works. However, Paul says that a man is justified by his faith. The thing that Martin Luther did not understand at that time, when James was writing, he was writing from man's viewpoint. When Paul was writing, he was writing from God's viewpoint. You see, in the eyes of man, a man is justified by his works. But in the eyes of God, a man is justified by his faith. However, both Paul and James are in agreement that a person is saved by faith and yet the works will follow that he has been saved. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's faith, Right? But then he adds, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, in Titus 3 and verse 5, Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, by the washing of a generation and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's faith, right? But then he adds Titus 3 and verse 8. Now this is a faithful saying, and I will that thou affirm constantly get it that they which have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So you see, Paul and James are in agreement. There is faith that saves and the works will follow to evidence that he really has been saved. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, saving faith, saving faith. Let's start with verse 14. What doth it profit, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith or can that kind of faith save him? Now look this way. Now folks, 
if I interpret that correctly, there is a faith that saves and there is a faith that does not save. Which kind do you have? Now, first of all, notice please a profitless faith. He gives this illustration in verses 15 and 16. Here's a Christian brother who's in need of food, clothing, and shelter. Well, an affluent Christian man comes along and he says, I see that you're in need of food, clothing, and shelter. Well, God bless you. I hope God meets your needs and he passes by. That's hypocritical. That's a profitless faith. It reminds me, Dr. Shoemaker, something that happened to me when I was a student in college. Uh, I was going home for Christmas vacation, and one of my good friends, Marv Frey, who's been a missionary to Brazil for 50 years, Marv was going with me to Elmira, New York. At that time, my parents lived in Elmira. And uh, so... We stood on Route 29 in front of EJ and we had our thumbs out. And we stood there so long, I looked at Marv and I said, Marv, I'm tired of standing here. I said, if somebody stops and says they're going slightly north, I said, let's take the trip. I said, whether it's northeast or northwest, or directly north. Now, if you look at a map, you will see that Elmira, New York is located directly north of Greenville, South Carolina. Now, my wife will tell you that I am uh, directionally challenged. When you give me directions, don't give me any of this east and west business. I don't understand that. I do understand right and left, but I don't understand east and west. Several years ago, when the GPSs came out, my wife bought me a GPS for Christmas. And you know, I never thought I'd have two women telling me what to do all my life. But I listen to that woman in that little box, and when I do, I wind up in the right place. So... After a while, as we were standing there with our thumb out, a man stopped and he said, I'm going to West Virginia. I looked at Marv and I said, bless God, let's go to West Virginia. Now, excuse me, I had never been to West Virginia at that point. And I'm sorry that my wife is listening to this message she is a loyal West Virginian. I tell her the West Virginia people are, are the most loyal people that I know of. I don't understand why they all move out of the state when they get old enough, but uh, they're loyal people. She says, honey, when you go into West Virginia, you see a sign that says West Virginia, almost heaven. I say, yes, but who wants to go to purgatory? But anyway, it was the second week of December and we got put out on Route 19 in the mountains of Beckley, West Virginia. It was a, a blizzard. 
second week of December. And uh, Marv and I walked seven hours back and forth. We were afraid if we sat down, we would freeze to death. And so we walked back and forth to keep the blood circulating. And finally, about 2.30 in the morning, a man stopped and he said, what are you fellas doing out on a night like tonight? I said, sir, I don't know. <laughs> he said, you ought to be in bed in a warm house at this time of the morning. I said, sir, you couldn't be more right. He said, well, good luck. I hope somebody picks you up and takes you home. Now, excuse me, my carnal nature got the best. I felt like ice picking his tires at that time. And as we were walking back and forth, I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but please don't lead me to West Virginia. You know where he led me? West Virginia. I got a wife out of it. By the way, I tell the preacher boys, I say, don't buy anything retail. You can always find it wholesale. You can find it on a sale. And uh, everything I buy, I buy on a bargain. I got these shoes on a bargain. I got this suit on a bargain. When I got my wife, man, did I get a bargain. Now, she got the short end of it, but I got a bargain. But anyway, uh, finally, about 7.30, somebody picked us up, and we did not die in that blizzard. But uh, that's the illustration that James gives, a profitless faith. Now, I believe probably uh, you go down to verse 21, and you see not only a, pro a profitless faith, but you see a proven faith. Now, can anybody tell me what chapter in the Bible uses the word faith the most? What chapter in the Bible? Anybody? Hebrews 11. Here's an interesting thing. Do you know what chapter uses the word faith the second most amount of times, James chapter 2. Isn't that interesting? All right. Now, I'm going to pause when I start reading this verse, and I want you to supply the next word. First of all, we've talked about a, pro a profitless faith. Secondly, here's a proven faith. All right, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by, by what? Works. Works when he had offered his son Isaac upon the altar. All right. Now James says that Abraham was justified by, by works. How do you correlate that with Romans 4, 2, and 3? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. All right, in Romans 4, Paul says Abraham was justified by faith. 
in James 2.21, James says that Abraham was justified by works, which is correct. Both are correct. Let me illustrate that for you. In Genesis chapter 11, Abraham is in the Ur of the Chaldees. The Ur of the Chaldees is a land of idolatry. His daddy died an idol worshiper, Joshua 24 and verse 2. So God reaches down and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of idolatry and go to the land of Canaan. You have the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And the Lord said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, at this time, Abraham is 65 to 70 years old. Uh, Sarah is 55 to 60 years old. Now, in that Abrahamic covenant, they don't have any children at this time. And God reaches down and he says, one day, Abraham, your seed's gonna be as the stars of the sky, his heavenly seed. And as the sand of the seashore, his earthly seed. Now, how in the world are they going to have seed like that when at their age, people usually don't have babies? But here's the principle. If God had given Sarah a baby at 55 to 60, you know what medical science would have said? It's possible, but it's not probable. So God didn't give her a baby at that time. I read of a lady in Florida had twins at the age of 58. Possible, but not probable. Well, the scene changes several years in the future, Genesis chapter 16. So Sarah comes to Abraham and she says, hey, honey, God didn't mean that I was to bear your child. I'm too old for that. God meant that Hagar was to bear your child. Now, in the study of Genesis chapter 12, as Abraham is on his way to the land of Canaan, he goes down because of a famine. He goes down to Egypt, Egypt a type of the world. So he backslides, go down, goes down to Egypt. Who does he take out of Egypt with him? Hagar. Almost every time you have Hagar's name mentioned, it's Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar the Egyptian. You know what God is doing? He's saying there are consequences for a child of God going down to the world, going down to Egypt. So they have a baby. And what is the baby's name? Ishmael. Do you know today the Jews are still paying for what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 16? And the Jews forever have been enemies of the Arabs. So in Genesis chapter 17 and verse one, you have another change of scenery. 
Now when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, I am almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. This is the first time Genesis 17 in verse one where God addresses himself as almighty God. Now what's he saying? He's saying, Abe, if I could create a universe in six days, don't you think I could give a 90-year-old woman a baby? Here's the principle, folks. If it had been at 55, medical science would have said, it's possible, it's not probable. So God waited till Sarah was 90 years old. Man's extremities are God's opportunities. Did you get that? Man's extremities are God's opportunities. When you get to the place where you say, Lord, I can't do it, and if it's accomplished, you're gonna have to do it. Do you know, Brother Ron, when I was laying the groundwork for Ambassador Baptist College, 12 of my good preacher friends turned against me. I did not accept a salary from Ambassador for four years. My board made me take a salary. And uh, many of my friends that I preached for through the years either did not schedule me again or they canceled me. And the first year I, I started Ambassador, my income was cut to one half of what it was the year before. But you know, when my friends turned against me, Sometimes, after service like this, I'd go to our RV and uh, I'd go to the back bedroom and I'd be weeping. My wife would come in and she'd say, honey, what's wrong? I'd say, I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't start a college. And God had to get me to that place where if ambassador ever became a reality, God would have to do it. Ron Comfort couldn't do it. I have told our students through the years, don't ever, don't ever refer to ambassador as Ron Comfort's school. If it were, the doors would have been closed a long time ago. It's God's school. So God gives Sarah a baby at the age of 90. When Abraham told her she was going to bear a baby, what did uh, Sarah do? She laughed. You can't be too hard on Sarah for laughing. 90 years old, going to have a baby? Go to the local old folks' home. Here's a 90-year-old woman sitting in a rocking chair and she's knitting and you'd say, Granny, you're going to be the mama of a bouncing baby boy. Don't you think that caused a ripple of laughter? Ripple nothing, an atomic bomb explosion. So Sarah laughed and God said, Sarah, why'd you laugh? And she tried to alibi out of it. And God said, don't you know that I'm almighty God? And if I could create a universe in six days, I could give a 90-year-old woman a baby. So she has the baby Isaac, the son of promise. Again, the scene changes to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22 and verse 2, God reaches down and he says, Abraham, take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, 
and get thee to the land of Moriah and offer him there upon a mountain which I will tell thee of. Now, probably Isaac is 30 to 35 years old at this time. Many times we think of Isaac as a young boy going up. Not true. He was a type of Christ. So they go a three days journey. That's important. Three is the number of the resurrection. They get to the land of Moriah. Do you know what the word Moriah means? The Lord will provide. So they get to the land of Moriah and Abraham looks at Isaac and his servants, and he said, you stay here with the asses. I and the lad will go yonder and worship, get it, and will come again to you. What's that saying? To Isaac, he was already a dead man. Abraham was gonna offer him, but to Abraham, he'd already been raised from the dead by faith. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Here's a beautiful picture, one of the most beautiful in the Old Testament. Here are Abraham and Isaac going up to the mountain. You know what God has coming up the other side of the mountain? He's got a lamb the Lord will provide. You know, I've seen that so many times at school. In 1991, I was with our 20-voice ensemble for spring break. And we were in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, after school convened, a lady from Raleigh who kept two of our girls wrote me a letter. And she said, Brother Comfort, I kept two of the girls and I am so impressed with the character of your students. And she said, I would like to send a check that you could apply to the bills of students or her needs. You know how much that check was for? An equivalent of $50,000 nowadays. I took that check and I put it on 63 different students' bills. I was like a kid in a candy store. Here they were going up this way, not knowing how God was going to meet their needs, but coming up the other way was the lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. So he takes Isaac, puts him on the altar, binds him, gets ready to plunge the knife through his body and God reaches over and he said, that's enough, that's enough. You showed the worlds to come years ago that you were justified by your faith. He said, now you've shown the worlds to come. You're justified by your works. He said, there's a lamb caught in the thicket. You put that lamb on the altar. You know what Abraham is called because of that? He's called the friend of God. R.A. Torrey was preaching one night and he was told about a wayward preacher's son in the congregation. So he directed many of his remarks to that wayward preacher's son. After the service was over, Tory was shaking hands and the boy came out and he said, young man, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself a friend of God? He said, why sure, Dr. Tory. I consider myself a friend of God. Tory turned to John 15, 14 
ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I've commanded you. With that, the boy dropped his head and said, well, I guess I'm not a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? You say, I'll do anything you want me to do, Lord, but I won't tithe. Don't you call yourself a friend of God. You say, I'll do anything you want me to do, Lord, but get baptized and join the church. Don't you call yourself a friend of God. If you say, I'll do anything but, you are not a friend of God. So number one, we've noticed a profitless faith. Number two, a proven faith. And then finally, verse 22, a perfected faith. Notice, please, verse 22. Seest thou how faith wrought with its works, and by works was faith made perfect. Now, if I were you, I would underline that word perfect in my Bible. And I would put in the margin of my Bible, mature or fully grown. You see, the Bible has nothing to say about sinless perfection. I had a man in Clarksburg, West Virginia, 28 years ago, say, Brother Comfort, I haven't sinned in 38 years. Wow. He ought to be in Ripley's, believe it or not. Hadn't sinned in 38 years. You know what I say? Ask his wife and she'll tell you different. That's right. Before I got married, my wife said, honey, I think you're perfect. After we got married, she said, honey, I made a mistake. You're not perfect. And you don't have to be around me five minutes to realize I'm not perfect. Someone said the only reason the Pope thinks he's infallible is because he's not married. <laughs> if he were married, his wife would tell him he wasn't infallible. Now, it's possible to be perfected, but still be in a carnal state. Take your Bible in closing and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now here was a church, they were saved. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called saints, so they were saved. But notice please 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. For I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm, I'm of Apollos, are ye not carnal? All right, look this way. Now there's a play on the word carnal. It's used in two different ways. In verse one, it's talking about the inability of a newborn baby. That's not an indictment. But when a baby's born, it cannot walk, it cannot talk, it cannot feed itself. That's simply a description of the inability of a newborn baby. But you go down to verse three, you're yet carnal. That's a different word. And that's somebody who's been saved for a while, but they've never grown. They're still sucking on a bottle spiritually. Now, quickly, three things in closing about a carnal Christian. Number one, 
They're immature. Immature. Uh, now, it, Brother Capel, if you're preaching and I'm sitting on the second row and there's a lady in front of me with a newborn baby, I ain't looking at you. I'm looking at that newborn baby. There is not a preacher in the world that can compete with a precious newborn baby. By the way, ladies, that's why we have nurseries for newborn babies. But five years later, that baby now is five years old, but he still can't talk. He still cannot walk. He cannot feed himself. What was a thing of beauty at one time is now a heartache. I wonder if God doesn't look down at this service this morning and say, there's so-and-so. He's been saved for 15 years, but he's never grown. He's still sucking on a bottle. You know, I believe that the average Jehovah's Witness could wrap the average fundamental Baptist around his little finger. You say, what do you mean? If a JW came and knocked on your door on Saturday and you went to the door and he held out his New World Translation and he says, look here at John 1.1. In the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Could you disprove that? Could you show him Isaiah 9 and verse 6? His name shall be called the mighty God. Could you show him Matthew 1.23? His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Could you show him John 20.28? 20, Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Could you show him Acts 28 and verse 20? Where, G, uh, where Paul said that the blood of Christ was actually the blood of God. Could you show him 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5? For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Could you show him 1 Timothy 3.16? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Could you show him Hebrews 2 and verse 9? where Paul, the writer, uh, addresses Jesus as God. So ladies and gentlemen, the average Christian in the pew, the only Bible he gets is what he gets from the pulpit. And the average Christian will not get in the book, find out what he believes and why he believes it. They're still sucking on a bottle spiritually. Number one, they're immature. Number two, incompatible. Paul says, you've got divisions among you. I tell pastors this, the thing that is keeping us from having revival is not the sins of the flesh. It's the sins of the spirit. I, for years, before I just started preaching on Sunday with my 84th birthday, uh, I, I would tell preachers, I'd like to speak in the combined Sunday school to start the meeting. And no matter what I preached, no matter what I preached, I always hit bitterness. Why? It's universal, folks. I tell our preacher boys this, it doesn't matter what the color of the skin is, what the language of the tongue is. 
They are, bitterness is a cancer that is worldwide. I asked evangelists many times, what message do you preach where you get the most results? And invariably they say the word bitterness, bitterness. I want to ask you a question. If somebody came and sat by you that you're in enmity with, would you want to change seats? Uh, if you were walking down the street and you saw somebody coming toward you, you'd want to cross the street and go by them on the other side. Now, folks, bitterness is a cancer that infects and affects everybody you get around. And you know what? Hebrews 13, 7 says, bitterness defiles many. So number one, they were immature. Number two, incompatible. And number three, they were inconsistent. In other words, Paul said, you're saved, but your next door neighbor can't tell it. Uh, I read about uh, George Mueller. How many of you read anything about George Mueller? George Mueller from 1830 to 1895 prayed in over $20 million for his orphanages. That would be comparable to $200 million today. When George Mueller died, they looked at his prayer diary and they found 56,000 dated definite answers to prayer. 56,000. I read about Spurgeon as he was preaching one Sunday afternoon as a visiting speaker. And they gave him a check after he got through preaching and Spurgeon looked at it and he said, this is an answer to prayer. He said, I've been wanting to redecorate my study and this is exactly what I'm going to need. And so as he left, God began to speak to his heart and he said, listen, you need to give that to George Mueller. And he began to argue with God. God, he can pray it in from some other place. I want to redecorate my study. And God seemed to say, Spurgeon, if you don't give that to uh, uh, George Mueller, you're going to miss a blessing I have in store for you. So he went over to Mueller's orphanage, knocked on the door. Mueller just got up from praying for the exact amount that the check was for. So he opened the door and there was Spurgeon and Spurgeon took the check, shoved it in his chest and he said, here, take this. And he walked away arguing with God. He went back to his study, sat down and there was an envelope on his desk. He opened the envelope and there was a check for the exact amount he had just given to George Mueller. Now, you say, I'd love to have the faith of George Mueller. You can have it. You know how he got it? By sleeping with his Bible under his pillow. No, that's not how he got it. <laughs> he read his Bible through 200 times from Genesis to Revelation. 100 times he read it on his knees through 100 times. Do you want to have the faith of a George Mueller? You've got to have the Bible of a George Mueller. Now let me say this. 
You tell me how much you read this book and I'll tell you how much you love Jesus Christ. We get up in church and we sing, oh, how I love Jesus and our Bible lays dusty all week long. If you don't read this book, you theoretically believe it, but you don't practically believe it. You tell me how much you read this book and I'll tell you how much you love Jesus Christ.